0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Hello, Greenhorns, this is Severin, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. Lots going on today, and... In general, in the season, I'm on the phone today with Ann Reardon coming from Cayuga Pure Organics in, well, not in Ithaca, but near Ithaca, New York. Hi, Ann. Hi, Severin. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> um, tell us what you're doing this time of year and tell us what your job is. Well, I am the field manager for Cayuga Pew Organics, which basically means I get to decide what we are planting and how many acres of it. So, anything that has to be grown, I get to decide where we're going to put it and how much of it we get. And what have you decided this year? Well, um, we have a five-year rotation, and, you know, our staples are dry beans, and we also do a, a whole lot of oats. Um... And we do a winter wheat and some corn for dairy farmers. And then a year of clover in there just to replenish the soil. And all of this is organic and regionally distributed and groovy. And how did yeah. you hear about it? <laughs> how did I hear about Kagipu you you Organics? Yeah. Well, I was kind of, you know, half heartedly going through graduate school. Um, I was getting a degree in reproductive biology. And I was on the last semester of my degree, and I met a girl that used to work at K U P Organics. And I started kind of tagging along when she did her... She was in charge of the processing plant. And so every, you know, Tuesday and Thursday, I'd come through and help her out with whatever she was doing, and I just got so enmeshed in being here that I gradually started coming more and more. And I think finally my boss noticed me and hired me. Well, and it's pretty awesome because a lot of times with field crops, if you go to conferences uh, on organic field crops um, or uh, and, and small grains, it's a mostly guys. So I was so glad um, to notice that you were a lady. Uh, <laughs> do you feel alone, like a lonely lady, or no? I noticed Cañada is just full of ladies. Yeah, we're we're very uh, ladyful. <laughs> Probably mostly. But uh, you know, no, I don't. I don't feel alienated at all from being a girl. Definitely, I I have a coworker, Liz, who, uh, you know, obviously is also a girl. And it's not so much the lack of females in it, but it's it's that grain farmers are not generally my age. I'm pretty young. Um, most young farmers I know these days are vegetable farmers or dairy farmers. So, um, but it's you know well there's a I'm reason for that. I mean, the reason for that is that there's so much equipment needed for grains and larger acreage for being a profitable operation and more capital but um, I know it's a big it's a big bummer it's the same thing as for orchardry and wine grapes and beef. most people who are young young ones in those fields are are managers of other people's operations, yeah. Well, I've certainly gotten nothing but support for uh, being young and female. People, um, they give me a lot of props for for doing it. So let's talk a little more about the particularities of beans and grains in the climate of New York State. (laughs) Well, let's see. New York does not have a particularly uh, fantastic climate for beans, I would say. Um, the greens that we grow, we've, we've moved away from growing wheat because it was very risky. Harvesting wheat was very risky. Now if you, there's basically one week to harvest it, and unfailingly it rains, um, and I always end up losing a good chunk of the wheat crop. So we've moved away from doing that. That's why we're focusing on oats. They're much less picky about that. But beans, in general, are a pretty high-risk crop. Um, we plant them in June, and they need hot, dry soil, you know, to germinate. Um, we, had a, we had a complete crop failure about two or three years ago because it was just so incredibly wet, none of the beans ever sprouted. It was uh, June was the wettest and coldest June on record, I think. And the weeds took over, and we didn't get any beans that year. So... That's, you know, it's it's challenging to start, but say you do get off to a good start and you have good weather for the rest of the for the growing period and when you harvest them in October or so, you know, then you have the... Beans are extremely short. We grow bush beans and they are very close to the ground, so it makes harvesting them very difficult. Um, I'm still experimenting with different ways to harvest. I think I used four different methods last season. Uh, what are the four methods? Holy smoke. Uh, let's see. What did I do? Well, we we first bought a, a swather, which is basically, it, it cuts them very, very close to the ground without dragging up dirt, because if you drag up dirt, then you put rocks through your combine and, uh, you know, usually break stuff. But the swather broke um, eight acres into the 70 acres we had to do. Um, and so then I moved to a different type of swather which is for grains, which really was just a complete failure. I don't don't even know what to say about that except it failed. Uh, And then I switched to a direct harvest, so I just took the combine straight out into the field and put the big grain head as far down onto the ground as I could to try and get as many beans. But when you do that, the beans are so short, you lose a lot of the pods that are close to the ground. And also the combine isn't the most ideal method of harvesting beans because it shatters them. And uh, finally, we there's a bean combine that um, it's specifically made for for harvesting beans. It has it. It's much more gentle on the pods, and it doesn't crack as many. And so that that was our last resort. I, I do think I tried all four this year. So, so an important thing to consider in thinking about the future of regional bean and grain growing, I'm sure has to do with selection of varieties that perform well with uh, all this uh, moisture in the summer. And clearly, if we keep having these mega hurricanes and mid-August type major wet events, which is really when you'd like everything to be drying down, I'm sure, uh, you may need to be thinking about those varieties from places in the world uh, where those kinds of conditions are present, where in the world is that or what varieties or thoughts in that direction do you have? You know, in, in terms of just uh, beans that are most resilient to the weather, it's difficult for us because we cater to um, a group of people that are very particular. Like we, we grow heirloom beans because the crowds in New York really like those beans. They're extremely, they have a very particular flavor, like our yellow eye and Jacob's cattle beans are extremely popular. Uh, much more, you know, uh, they're they're more expensive, honestly, because they're prettier. They have all types of funky colors, and they taste better than, like, black and pinto beans. Um, but they're also much wimpier, and they don't yield as well. So we try to balance that out. And if I were going to give advice to someone who was just going to grow beans to eat, I would say you would want to get beans that stand as far up off the ground as possible because beans can tolerate wet weather, um, plenty of wet weather, uh, as long as they're not lying on the ground. Because if they have continual wet weather and they're lying on the ground, then they'll mold. But if the plants stand up nice and strong and hardy, then it won't be a problem. Um, You don't do any climbing beans, do you? No, Mm -mm. all bush beans. All bush beans, yeah. Because climbing beans that'd be a hell of a lot of work to do on a big scale. But I, I just looked at these big pictures um, of hops growers in uh, in Western New York, which was a really big industry in Western New York, growing growing hops for all these German breweries. And uh, they they were stringing up just massive acres.es of... Anyway, that's off topic. Um. <laughs> It's true. I mean, you would have to harvest them a very different way, which we're not equipped to do. (laughs) But, yeah, I can imagine that would be a a humongous, uh, you know, labor, lots of grunt work. Yeah, well, you could harvest them with, um, you know, drones with laser beams. No problem. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, let's talk about milling and cleaning and where you guys are at and how you got there and, and what you're looking towards in the next phase of capitalizing and developing your beanery? Oh, well, let's see. Um, The beanery is is a pretty... People are always shocked at how small the beanery actually is. Um, We have a couple of different machines that we use to process the beans. Uh, I hate that word, actually. It's not really processing. It's just like, you know, getting the dirt and rocks out of them. Processing makes it sound awfully fake. But, so, say I bring a, a, you know, a wagon load of beans from the field, and I'll bring them to the beanery. And basically what we do is you unload them from the wagon, and I'll try to run them through the cleaner immediately just to get all the stuff from the field that's bad, like the chaff or any rocks or bean pods that didn't quite split, or some of the splits out maybe, so we have to deal with less of them later. Uh, it'll be a cursory cleaning, um, and then we'll take those beans out of the cleaner and we'll put them in a big bin with a perforated floor, because usually you'll harvest the beans at around 16 percent moisture, and in order for them to keep correctly, they should be a little bit lower than that. I mean, 16 percent is good usually. I've harvested beans at 20 or 20 or 22 percent moisture, and that's bad. They mold very easily at that point. Um. And then, so, they go into this big bin with a perforated floor, and we'll keep just air on them for anywhere, you know, a week, two weeks, or off and on. You don't want to add heat to beans because then the skins will crinkle, and they'll look extraordinarily unattractive. And they don't keep as well. Um, But you can use just straight air. And then when we were bringing them back into the beanery for, you know, final cleaning, then they'll go through the cleaner again to get out, you know, another layer of junk. And then we recently acquired a a splitter, which separates the split beans from the whole beans. And then they'll go over something called a gravity table, which separates by density. And so all the the finer beans will move up to the top of the table, and the chaff and junk and stuff that we don't want, or the second-class beans will move down to the bottom of the table. It shakes back and forth on an angle and has... Uh, a huge fan in the bottom, which blows up, so the beans are kind of boiling on the top of the table. If I don't know if that's, that's making any sense. Uh, it makes enough sense for now. I wonder if maybe the the next thing to talk about would be how you would, 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 would urge people who are interested in getting involved in either growing for you guys or growing kind of anywhere in the Northeast how to approach that and kind of what the institutional uh, network is and how the distribution parts work so that people understand, like, a little bit of the supply chain and where their operation or potential operation or potential just building the skills for a career towards the direction of producing more regional beans and grains might be best directed. You know, CPO. I, I wouldn't want to do beans on a smaller scale than what we're doing. Um, like I would, I think doing beans on a small like we grow seventy acres of beans and we distribute them locally, which includes, of course, New York City. Um, and it the amount of equipment that you need and the size of the equipment that you need, I think it would be really difficult if you were doing 30 acres or 15 acres or, you know, what smaller growers would start off doing. Because um, there's no easy way to harvest beans. I think there's there's people that have come up with extremely interesting methods of how to do it. I I think yeah, I, I met a man here at our field day who said he harvested them and then he drove over them with his car until all the pods split. But, you know, that's incredibly labor-intensive. I wouldn't want to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly... So I'm what not... you're saying is if you were going to do beans, that you really should get the equipment to do the bean harvester. My friends are actually, um, up in Adirondacks are actually think, looking at making their own bean harvester from, um, some plans they found on the internet. And oh, yeah. it's about, it's about six grand cheaper than, than the cheapest bean combine they could find. And they're they're kind of we got our bean combine for fifteen hundred. So like a genuine bean. I got we got our bean combine for fifteen hundred dollars. So whoa, small small yeah small scale bean combines that you know because no one does the 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 CPO is really not very big. Like if if you went out farther west and you told a farmer there that we grew seventy acres of wheat, they would laugh at us. It wouldn't be, you know, they'd be like, that's ridiculous. We grow thousands of acres of wheat. How can you possibly just grow 70? You know, and it's because we have a very specialized clientele that, you know, really want good organic wheat that we're able to do that. Um, but that's about as small as I would advise people to go for growing beans and grains because it really does get, your labor costs will go way up if you're doing things by hand for less acre, just. Well, and in the Willamette Valley, there's a really cool project where there's uh, large growers and small growers working together, and because the small growers, as you say, have so many labor costs, they're the ones who are doing the variety testing, and they have they are allowed to sell at the farmer's market, and the larger growers are benefiting from the seed grow-outs that are done by the smaller farmers and buying at, at seed prices, because they're trying to, you know, build up enough seed for doing bigger acreages uh, from seeds that aren't really available in those quantities, and then the smaller farmers are also uh, protected from competition by the big growers because the big growers agree only to sell in the supermarket. So it's like everybody works within their skill set in the larger marketplace. The purpose of whose the purpose of the coordination is and cooperation is to increase the amount of food crops that are grown oil oilseed and grains and beans in an area that really had become predominantly focused around uh, grass and sod and sheep. And Yeah, that um, sounds really wonderful. It's. Yeah, isn't that a great... What a, what a mutual Willamette- relationship. That's awesome. Uh, Willamette Bean and Grain Project. Come again? Um it's called the Willamette Bean and Grain Project. Oh, I'll have to look that up. That sounds really great. Um, let's see now. What else is going on in Ithaca? Cayuga is there. <laughs> Cornell is there. You guys just had a big seed saving thing. No, I, else I is, actually what got. Else it. Is it? What? You got sick? No, I can't hear you. Oh no! I got shipped off to Florida for a week, so anything big that happened in a in an agricultural sense last week, I, I totally missed. Um, that sounds terrible. Uh, Gosh, what a, what a terrible thing! Well, it was extremely warm, so that was nice. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, so better. so my next question is: um, Where in Ithaca are the best places for people who are interested in joining the farming community there? To, to approach as an entryway into farming? Are there places that, like, take volunteers or... I just I'm imagining some of these wonderful Cornell students that I hear so much about. Where should they start thinking about volunteering? Well, Cornell has its own student-run organic farm. It's called Billman Hill, um, and I know that they're always looking for volunteers. I mean, Cornell also has a, an extremely extensive, like, experimental berry patch, and they have pretty much every animal you could think of and any any time you would like to volunteer at Cornell I'm sure they will let you but for for every you know for other people also a lot of the vegetable farms Ithaca is bursting at the seams with vegetable farms um organic vegetable farms and I know that they have a lot of temporary openings during the summer when things get crazy um I wish I could say that CPO was able to take Volunteers and you know interns on more successfully, but with the amount of machinery that we have, it's difficult to train people quickly and safely enough to you know. So I feel confident that they can go out and do what I ask or do what I need. Um, so volunteering at CPO is not always the most entertaining because it's usually bagging beans or or shoveling uh, compost or stuff like that. It's really not that fun. So, but I do know a lot of vegetable farms have a lot of openings during the summer. So for people who are just trying to think about other machinery and grains and, and or just getting their minds wrapped around something other than vegetables, I really recommend this book called Steel in the Field. That's about cultivation and, you know, tractors and how they attach to each other. And um, the, any other recommendations that you have? Um, for, for books, no, I just, uh, I actually, not tractor-related, this is a little bit off-subject, but not tractor-related. I just read a book um, by, I think, Catherine Gustafson called, Ch- uh, oh man, I can't remember what it was called, actually. It's about the, uh, the local food movement and how it's growing, and she, basically, the author goes to every single different state and charts how their local food movement is growing. Um... I wish I could remember the name. I'm sorry, that's terrible, but uh you know on a on a tractor <laughs> and a tractor and it I spend a lot of my time reading engine books and electronic books and hydraulic power transmission books um, which aren't generally it's it's usually out of necessity or last minute panic because something is broken, and I don't know how to fix it, and that's basically how I've learned to do all of the mechanic work that I do do on the farm is because I've been in a pinch and there's been nothing else to do or no one else to help. Um, So, other than those books, I don't actually get to do all that much reading. Well, one thing I've definitely heard from people is if you can learn to do, you know, not even basic, but, like, if you can learn to do most of your own mechanical repairs, that has a lot to do with how viable you are going to be as you scale because the cost of the cost of equipment repair and the time that it takes and, and the urgency that it that it takes on, you know, is a very can really make or break your week. And if your week, if it's wet, if it's a wet spring or whatever, um, I don't have to tell you this, but I I'm telling it to the audience because if you are thinking about small farming, and you're at the point in your life where you've done a lot of farm work and harvesting and planting and transplanting, but you haven't been involved in machine repair, doing a short course and reading books over winter seems to me like a really good way to prepare yourself to be in end shoes um, and not having to outsource to others your... Um oh not having outsourced to others your mechanic- machinery. It's incredibly important. I can't tell you how many times I've been, like, stuck in fields with absolutely no clue what's going on or why I'm broken. And I think that we spend most of our time, a huge chunk, if there were a hole, you know, if there were a hole money-wise, it would be, you know, all of our tractors are old, and they need a lot of repairs. It feels like sometimes things are consistently breaking. Uh, it can get very frustrating. So, yeah, uh, all the I do do a lot of reading, and uh, it's not it's not the same. Reading is not the same for actually getting out there and getting your hands dirty, which I've unfortunately found. But um, yeah, you're definitely right about the winter reading and preparing yourself for any possible problems that might happen during the season. Um, I guess last last moment we should spend talking about favorite books. Talking about favorite books? Yeah, like what are your favorite books that you read? Oh uh, yes. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, untractor related. I'm really into uh, sci-fi. Believe it or not, and you know, adventure stories. <laughs> Well, adventures are good. I like adventures too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, something that's so totally unrelated from my from my daily life, and you know, I like comic books. Those are fun too. Um, I want to make sure I mention a couple of Greenhorn things. Number one, March thirteenth is No Farms, No Food rally in Albany. I think Heritage Radio is going to be there, and we're going to be there. So much energy to push for the legislature of New York to do uh, an evaluation of open land that's done by the state, schools, Department of Education, and other uh, municipal bodies to see which of that land could be turned into farmland. And um, that's the piece of legislation that's being introduced on March 13th in Albany. Then, oh dear. I forgot some of the other things. Oh, yeah. We're doing a mixer in Minneapolis. Uh, I mean, a farm hack in Minneapolis, a farm hack in Detroit, in Ann Arbor, a mixer in Kentucky, and our stuff. So, I hope things are going to start I don't know if it's going like